Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Why don't we begin in prayer together in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life. Come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all sin, and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Welcome to all of you, and Andy, I'm going to hand it over to you. Thanks, Father. Please welcome back Dr. Mia. Thank you, everybody. And thank you, Andy. Thank you, Father. Welcome back uh, to the Seneca Seminar. So I was on Twitter. Yes, I'm on Twitter. And someone was talking about St. Augustine, and they said, you know, St. Augustine, he's discoverer of the will. And another one said St. Augustine was the one who discovered the interior life. And I had to sort of, sort of take a step back and say, well, he's the one who really sort of taught the will in light of our fallenness and the need for grace. And he illuminated the interiority that Christ had to enter. But in one sense, he was using a map of natural reason, which he got from the discoverer of the interior life, which is Seneca's epistles. And just to kind of bring a few people who weren't here last week up to speed, we were talking about this, just this first uh, letter, Epistle 20, and its, its shape. And its shape is a sort of helpful reminder, just jogging our panelists' memory, but also everyone else. Then if you look at the very first paragraph of it, he says at the end of it, this, however, my dear Lucilius, I ask and beg of you on your part that you let wisdom sink into your soul and test your progress, not by mere speech or writings, but by stoutness of heart and decrease of desire. Prove your words by your deeds. That winds up being the structure of this first letter. And we got through roughly about section six, and hopefully we can look at seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, you know, get, get through this uh, whole letter in fairly short order so we can talk about the next one, which is in a certain sense more complex. But in that, first he talks about this idea of being constant and holding to one idea. Right? What is your desire? What do you want to be wise? You, you, know, you want to have the right ideals and you want to live them out. But that's a two-part thing. And the first five sections more or less are about being constant and having that stout-heartedness not to give up on the truth and to be demanding in that way, uh, even though you know you can't always make it. But then he says in section six, oh, we're sort of weak and we waver and we go with the flow. We need to realize that perhaps you will be led to perfection or to a point which you alone understand as perfection, but otherwise you could just go along and treat all of life like a game. And then he flips to the second part. The first one was about that stoutness of heart remaining firm, but then the second part is decrease of desires, right? If you're going to be purposeful and say, I'm going to serve this one thing. Now for Seneca, it's not Christ and his glory. For Seneca, it's wisdom right, and that constancy of thought, right, moral virtue per se. We have an elevated sort of theological virtues that go beyond that, but it's that singleness, right? Well, if you're going to be single, then you're going to have to reduce all of your lesser desires. But I would submit to you just, you know, I, I don't want to talk too much about these secondary matters, but this is the Institute for Catholic Culture, so I thought I would just start with a kind of Christian context here, that in a certain sense, we're learning what Augustine and the patristic father, the church fathers, what they were engaging with, what they were in dialogue with. Uh, and the epistles are a great way to come to understand what Augustine's doing in the confessions and what he's changing 
from natural wisdom. Vele et nole, the English version of that is willy-nilly. Like, oh, he's willy-nilly. He's sort of, he's, it's all over the place. It's not constant, right? He isn't constancy. He's not firm. But that's actually from these words that you see all over the Latin of this Epistle 20, vele et nole, right? These are the sorts of terms we observed last week, especially if you look on page two in uh, section five, semper idem vele atque idem nole, right? He says, this is sort of the secret to all wisdom, always desiring vele the same things and always refusing the same things, saying no to the same things. Augustine will take that up in the confessions and say, actually, I'm willy-nilly. My will is bifurcated. And this is the famous image of the broken will that appears to be two. I will it, but I do not will it. I, you know, make me chase Lord, but not yet, right? He's got this tension. And it's only the grace of God that comes and heals the will and makes it one and gives it the kind of strength that Seneca's talking about. But it is, it's just very interesting to see grace and nature you can better understand Augustine's theology of the, of the fallen will and his theology of grace if you study the interior life as mapped out by Seneca. Not perfectly. Augustine goes further, but it's much of the sort of faith and reason kind of benefits that we get from studying pagan philosophy and then Christian theology and moral, moral theology or metaphysics. The capillaries of Fides et Ratio, studying these Romans is actually a much tighter fit in some sense, because that's much closer to the Christian fathers and what they were working with. And Seneca is a development from Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics. Many of the things that are in there are brought forward. So that's sort of a little bit of extra context. Why don't we turn to uh, section seven and sort of ask the question, if this is, and I think we've established this from last week, this is the, the section that is about what was said to be decrease of desire, right? We need to decrease desire. Why is the subject poverty? Why is that the topic of this section? And we can just throw, sort of throw it open to the floor of panelists. If anyone has uh, comments they want to bring to bear on this second half, uh, passages they want to take us to. Otherwise, we might, I might take us to a few passages and read aloud. But thoughts from panelists? No, that's fine. Best is just read a passage. Why don't we read the uh, section eight here where he says, accordingly. Alex, will you read that passage for us? Accordingly, let your thoughts, your efforts, your desires help to make you content with your own self and with the goods that spring from yourself and commit all your other prayers to God's keeping. What happiness could come closer home to you Bring yourself down to humble conditions from which you cannot be ejected, and in order that you may do so with greater alacrity. The contribution contained in this letter shall refer to that subject. I shall bestow it upon you forthwith. So what is this idea of, you know, your efforts help to make you content with your own self and with the goods that spring from yourself? What are those goods? And Let's give Seneca the benefit of the doubt. Why isn't this just sort of a kind of solipsistic sort of guru self-help, like just go inside to the treasures of the self? Is that what this is or, 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 or what? Thoughts on this, anyone? The way I would think about the uh, treasures of the inside is if you look at this understanding of uh, gold and uh, this understanding of uh, the gold mine, which is in the next letter, but it might be worth first, before we jump to that letter, get a sense of poverty. So let's read section seven. Let me just read it quickly and gloss it for a minute. But what you say will become of my crowded household without a household income? If you stop supporting that crowd, it will support itself. Or perhaps you will learn by the bounty of poverty what you cannot learn by your own bounty. I find that to be very, a very strange and curious echo of the kinds of, of beautiful sentiments of spiritual writers 
in the faith regarding the virtue of poverty. This is, I think, the sort of initial echoes of that understanding of the virtue of poverty. Poverty will keep you, uh, keep for you your true and tried friends. You will be rid of the men who are not seeking you for yourself, but for something which you have. Is it not true, however, that you should love poverty? If only for this single reason, that it will show you those by whom you are loved. Or when will that time come when no one shall tell lies to compliment you? Poverty strips away those concerns. And if you look at 13, uh, section 13 on page 5 of the reading, he says, I hold it essential, therefore, to do as I have told you in a letter that great men have often done, to reserve a few days to which we may prepare ourselves for real poverty by means of fancied poverty. That's a horrible translation in a certain sense. It just sounds so, you know, let them eat cake kind of feeling, like I'll just sort of pretend to be amongst the peasants for a minute, sort of, some sort of, uh, you know, like the, the nasty smears on Marie Antoinette. There is all the more reason for doing this because we have been steeped in luxury and regard all duties as hard and onerous. Rather let the soul be roused from its sleep and be prodded, and let it be reminded that nature has prescribed very little for us. Notice how he handles riches and property and wealth. What is he saying here about these things? Yes, please, Josh. They sort of uh, create an illusion. They can make you think that things are good when they're not, or your friends to his point, can lie to you and flatter you. And yeah, I think that perhaps part of what he's saying is uh, that poverty gives you sort of a, a dose of, of realism. But it was also interesting, the idea of reserving a few days to spend in this sort of simulated poverty, uh, thought it was very appropriate for Advent, this idea that the church gives us that there's, there's times of fasting and of feasting, and uh, Seneca seems to be down with that. Yeah, right. He doesn't see the transcendent, the grace-filled operations that are ongoing there. But I just find it a fascinating argument that this is actually part of the natural sapiential quest, right? That, that fasting is actually absolutely part of our natural good, which is, I think, fascinating to see. With regard to what you said, Josh, about an illusion, what's the ground of reality here? But he says, except... Let it be reminded that nature has prescribed very little for us. So he's sort of, he is making a distinction between the nature of things and then the extraneous or the conventional, or later on he'll use in another letter, the alien, the things that are sort of beyond us or outside of ourselves, meaning anything that's extrinsic, right? And by nature, he's sort of like, okay, you come into this world, a naked little baby, no man is born rich. So by nature, you don't have any of these things. By the way, that's a teaching of Roman philosophy that is both misunderstood in every direction, that property isn't natural to man. Because uh, you could say that and then you can hate it. Yeah, Tom, please. No, sir, I was just suddenly struck by the gospel story of, of Jesus talking about teaching how to pray. And not like the Sadducees and the Pharisees that, you know, stand in the middle of the church in a place of honor so everyone can see how they pray and making loud noises. And there's almost a comparison to bow your head, be humble, and pray as if you truly have a man of respect. And he's comparison true poverty in the kind of the same way is a manner of respect, vice, you know, the Marie Antoinette fancied poverty. Right. There is a certain amount of like, okay, well, if you decide to take a um, time of fasting, you are pretending to be poor, right? And it turns out you could eat the food. It's right there. There's a sort of understanding of role-playing, but you're, you're actually, you have property and goods, but you're going to pretend like you don't for a time. I find that to be pretty fascinating too. One other thing about this ethic of poverty he says in, in, uh, on page 5, in s- at section 12, it's the mark, however, of a noble spirit 
not to precipitate oneself into such things. Like you don't fly into poverty. Uh, yeah, Evan. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to, that's what I was going to uh, point out. He uh, talks a lot about it being natural and talks about um, that a lot, but he doesn't pretend it's easy. And especially at the end of 11 and the beginning of 12, like what you just said there, uh, it's not the mark, however, of a noble spirit, not to pre- precipitate oneself into such things on the ground that they are better, but to practice them on the ground that they are thus easy. I think that's important. He's, he's talking to um, Lucilius saying like, yeah, no, I know. I understand. I understand your uh, concern. That this, this is uh, going to be tough, but this is why it's right. Yeah. And right after that, he says in that same passage 12, they're easy to do to endure Lucilius when, however, you come to them after long rehearsal, right? So you can handle your, and when do these things actually happen? When do you actually start losing your worldly goods? When you die, right? You start to be, you lose them because you can't actually manipulate them anymore. Your hand is infirm, so you can't use your car, right? You can't use the uh, bicycle anymore, so you've lost that piece of property, right? You don't need the running shoes anymore because you can't run. And so you're going to lose all this property over time. And he's saying you should prepare. It's sort of a psychological account of mortification and fasting for the sake of a good death so that you can actually have a good and holy death. Uh, now, he wouldn't have said holy, but I'm playing a little fast and loose with the uh, Fides Orazio here. One other thing about this passage, on if you look at section 10 and 11, which... Again, Evan was just mentioning. He gives that account at 10. May not a man, however, despise wealth when it lies in his very pocket? He goes, what do I do if I have property and wealth? And, you know, if you live in the United States, you probably do. If you have a computer with internet access, you probably have a certain amount of wealth, greater than most of the rest of human history. Of course, he was a great, uh, he also is great soul who sees riches heaped up round him and after wondering long and deeply because they have come into his possession, smiles and hears rather than feels that they are his. Right? This is all yours. <laughs> right? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Meaning I hold my property very lightly. There's a great, Thomas More has a great uh, epigram where he talks about a field. He says, this field so-and-so's, you know, some Latin name. This field's Lucilius's, but tomorrow it'll be Seneca's. Who's to say, right? It's going to change hands. So don't hold too fiercely to your property because you might be preparing it for a terrible fool in the next generation of it, right? You can't take it with you, essentially. But just the finishing 10 and going to 11, it means much not to be spoiled by intimacy with riches. And he is truly great who is poor amidst riches, right? So that prudence of like being, be careful with property because like, who's it, Josh, he said, it is an illusion because you think it's more yours than it really is. When by nature, you're going to lose it. You don't hold it in the same way you hold your interior goods, right? Which is what I think he was talking about initially. Like, go to those things that are on the inside. One of the thing about this, look at 11. Yes, but I do not know, you say how the man you speak of will endure poverty if he falls into it suddenly. Meaning, like, I, well, uh, don't, you don't want to be poor all of a sudden. You'll just blow a gasket. You'll lose it, right? You won't be ready for it. Uh, you'll be overturned. Uh, you'll lose your mind. But listen to what he says. This is actually, I think, a very subtle, nasty knock. Uh, not nasty. It's just a, it's a hard knock. It's a, it's a thump on Lucilius. He says, nor do I, Epicurus, he calls him Epicurus there, right? Famous for seeking pleasure and basing everything around pleasure, right? See, you're very worried about losing all of this, right? You're very worried about losing property and the means to comfort that soft bed. Nor do I, Epicurus, know whether the poor man you speak of will despise riches should he suddenly fall into them. Meaning you should be more concerned, not with the loss of property, and up the upending of those illusions to suddenly be thrown upon your nature unprovided, you should be more concerned with being deceived by the illusory nature of riches, which causes men to praise you over much, give you more honor than you deserve, and you think you possess it more strongly, 
permanently and fiercely than is r really the case. So he's, he's pushing really hard on the love of pleasure, driving people to be more worried about the tr trials of detachment than the trials of having riches. So if you really want to be firm in the pursuit of philosophy, you have to have a despite of riches. Even if you hold them, you have to, in a certain sense, have a dis despise of them, right? Hold them lightly in your hand, right? And then there's that line that, Evan, you were going to. Otherwise, the cot bed and the rags are slight proof of his good intentions. If it has not been made clear that the person concerned endures these trials not from necessity, but from preference. The Latin there is great, and I just want to spend one second on it before we move on uh, to the next letter. But the Latin there is beautiful. It's just the end of that bottom of the column on page four. Aliquim illa non necitate pati sed male. That word male, it's actually magis vele, smushed together into a, a word, meaning I have, uh, I want or I will, I choose, I want more. Now you can say more, I want this more, I want more of something, or I want this thing more than I want something else. But what it says is, if it has not been made clear that the person concerned endures these trials not from necessity, but from preference. Meaning, if you live rags and you try to live, you know, roughing it, but you do it because you feel you have to, rather than because you want to, then you're actually going to rob yourself of the virtues that can come from living poverty. Right? You have to choose virtue for its own sake, right? Other than the Nicomachean ethics, right? You have to choose to be virtuous. If poverty comes upon you and you just see it as this horrible necessity, just something awful that you have to endure, or any kind of deprivation, really, any kind of even small poverty, you're actually going to rob yourself of the opportunity, the treasure of poverty, he says, because you won't be able to choose it and rely and go in and say, okay, I'm going to actually make having nothing on the outside, turn that nothingness into a treasure by going inside and saying, this is a necessity, right? Like say my house burns down, but I'm going to love this opportunity to train myself to be detached and live more in accord with my own nature and learn how to despise riches. Right now I don't have them, so I'm going to despise them. But he's saying that's the kind of way you have to think so that when you have riches, and Lucilius, by the way, has just published a big poem. He's a procurator. Or, you know, he's moving up. He's going to become a wealthy, powerful man. That's how you have to think when you have riches too, right? Is you have to say, okay, I'm going to choose to live more poorly as if I don't own this stuff. Yeah, Josh? Yeah, it's just sort of reminds me of uh, Jesus saying, blessed are the poor in the spirit. He doesn't just say, blessed are the poor, and, you know, goes into such ideas elsewhere, but blessed are the poor in the spirit, that you could can be rich, even though it's hard to get to heaven that way, like Jesus also says, but to be poor in the spirit is, is blessed, and it's kind of straight out of Seneca or vice versa. Yeah, right, like the beggar with his pewter spoon that he just loves and he licks and looks at its shininess and he keeps it in his, his rags. That's a rich man. That's dangerous, even though he's poor materially. But really, he's poor interiorly because he, he does not love what's there. Yeah, Matt, do you remember there is a pistol that we had looked at a couple summers ago or something that had the line of like, you should eat your eat from your like clay bowls as if they were gold and from your golden bowls as if they were made of clay. Yes, I do remember exactly. Asking me to pull that needle out of the haystack of riches here is going to be absolutely possible. But but yes, that he has a number of these sorts of he even suggests you know days of fasting and feeding on roots, all kinds of um, sort of hilarious. Familiar suggestions if you, you know, Lenten fasts, like pass on the meat. And, and he's making all this argument from reason alone. But yeah, I do recall the line, but I don't think I'll be able to pull it for you. I'm sorry, Andy. That's fine. Oh, Paul and Christina here. One, one other thing that we liked about this was, this is something you talked about last session, but, you know, Seneca is such a, a practical stoic, right? He's 
he, he himself is a, is a, a man you know, who, who's lived in the world, right? And he's writing to a man living in the world. And, and you know, at first you start reading a section on poverty and, and you can just imagine Lucille saying, great, here's where he says, I have to give up everything and live, and live on beans, right? Uh, I've, I've been waiting for this. Uh, you know, the hammer's gonna drop. But he doesn't say that, right? He actually says, as, as you were saying, he says that you, you need to achieve a level of detachment through practicing voluntary poverty at times, but he doesn't say you actually should abandon all your property and all your official responsibilities and go live in a, in a hut somewhere. He acknowledges the mm-hmm. fact that you know, people living in the world, obviously it's a, a Christian phrase, but you know, people living in the world, that's, that's not incompatible with living the virtue of poverty. Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. And the way you have to do it is you have to constantly have recourse to nature and go, okay, I have this whatever, like uh, this Roman villa with my, you know, fields of olive trees. But I am just a man and I will die and be wrapped in a shroud and thrown into the earth. It's the kind of thing we think about with the Stoics of sort of memento mori, like thinking about your death. But it's worth noting, it's not just that. It's also thinking about your birth. You were born a naked little babe. This isn't, these riches are really aren't yours because they'll slip through your fingers. So it asks you to think about interior wealth, interior goods. And I think that's that reference to you need to go and rely on yourself. And I don't think it's the kind of sort of just interior sort of self-help guru-dom. It's you need to start taking consolation in moving forward in virtue. That's the sorts of things that you should be taking pleasure in, these higher pleasures of you know, moving forward in virtue. Can I just touch on one more thing, Matt, from this Oh, letter? please, Christina, please, by all means. Yeah, just going back to section five, I wanted to touch on something you said before, which is the division of the will. And I think you really see that here, where he says that... Christina, we actually read this passage before you got, okay. this got on. Yeah, we did. We went right to it, and we talked about it okay. for a while. But yeah, right. it's right there. Uh, and I don't know if you got on in time to hear about the male uh, on page four, but it's literally another round of to want enough, right? To want, to want more, like this is, I want this more than the, I want to succumb to necessity. So when you have a limitation or a poverty, your will is wavering. I don't like this. I'm squirming away from it. He's saying, no, here's how to do it. Hold yourself towards this thing and say, I actually want this, right? Here's something bad coming. This is a natural version. It is the natural psychological analog to embracing the cross of Christ. It's literally the the proto-evangelium of accepting crosses, right? And offering them up to God. Yes, Teresa. Is this Stoicism? It's Senecan Stoicism, which is, I think, a special thing that really needs to be sort of elevated almost up and out of the basic stereotypes of Stoics. It's fine to beat up on the harshness of certain Stoics mm-hmm. and their excesses, but uh, Seneca is something next level. He's a more integrated thinker, I think. But yes, it is. In a certain sense, this is you know vintage Stoicism. Why is it elevated? Meaning that this is much more of the sort of gentler, softer, humane understanding. It's not that same kind of impossible, cold, self-willed. It does degenerate into that in places like you can see where he's trying to find the basis for getting after it and doing these things. And Augustine says, you're just making it up at the end of the day. You can't sort of like ride your imaginary horse up to heaven, right? So he does, in the end, fall to the kind of pride that the pagans are all have to succumb to when they try to rest everything on philosophy, but it's masterfully close to the real truth, uh, just missing the operative graces and the salvific strengthening graces to actually do what, what is said. Now, there's lots of other things that follow from the grace life and what you understand from the true image of Christ and wisdom suddenly develops into a person and there's lots of other things that Christianity does that go beyond it. But RJ, did you have something you wanted to say? Yes, uh, Dr. Meehan, we learned recently the secondary motto of the Society of Jesus is magus, 
or more. And um, I guess, would you say that the Jesuits take what Seneca is trying to say in the best way? They want more, but the more they're speaking of is for others, like a man for others. So would you say that uh, St. Ignatius and Seneca would, would have been buddies? Or I don't know, what, what would your take on that be? I don't want to get into trying to figure out everything about Jesuit spirituality and how it relates to Seneca, but I know that a lot of Ignatian spirituality has a lot of these understandings of the psychology, but mostly out of osmosis that this is the apparatus, the interior life sort of natural wisdom that was adopted, right, and grafted perfectly in as a kind of structural matter. Not that it's all pluripotently there in Christ and his apostles and the teachings, but we like to borrow easy apparatus that we could set up and that are helpful. But yeah, I don't know if Magis uh, has to do with Male. I don't know. I, mean, I don't know. Good. Let's look at 23 and let's just look right at this um, major claim here in sections one, two, and three. Uh, if you look down, it says, I'm not going to talk about the weather. Uh, please, we're better friends than that. No, I shall communicate something which may help both you and myself. And what shall this something be? Notice he says, writing this letter is helping me. Right? By communicating to someone else these truths, I'm actually benefiting myself by rehearsing them. That repetition uh, is very good. I was glad, Father, before we got online, Father, we had Andy uh, Hickman read one passage three times. because like, this is so Seneca, right? You've got to bring things back up. He says, what is this something, if not an exhortation to soundness of mind, ad bonum mentem, a good mind? Do you ask what is the foundation of a sound mind? It is not to find joy in useless things. I said that it was the foundation. It's really the pinnacle. So you see, it's all of it. This is it to don't find joy in useless things. It's not to find joy in them. We have reached the heights if we know what it is that we find joy in uh, and if we have not placed our happiness in the control of externals. Now, in one sense, this sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? Like, can I take a joy in something useless? Like, I don't know, a stupid knock-knock joke? Like, isn't that good? Can I do that? Is, is that... Is it bad? Is, would Seneca say that's a sin? They use that word, peccati, by the way. It's a sin, a failing, a, a lack of good. I guess the answer would be uh, if you've ever been on the internet and you'd seen like uh, the Chuck Norris jokes website, and it's like a million and a half Chuck Norris jokes, and you sort of recoil in sort of mild horror from this massive collection, Right. Even though you sort of admire it, you're like, I could read any one of them and enjoy it. But the reason why that's a useless thing you shouldn't take joy in is because you should tell jokes for your human good. You should enjoy things because they're enjoyable, they rest the mind, they bring people together, they disarm somebody who's getting angry for no good reason, right? But if you just sat there and read all 1.3 million Chuck Norris jokes, you would be taking joy in a useless thing. Meaning things are useless, not just in themselves. They're useless or useful with respect to the human good. That's what's often forgotten. And that actually is the good kind of humanistic thinking, is something is good, not just for the sake of it being useless, right? It's good because this is good for man to do, or good for man to enjoy a rest from the daily life? Yes, Alex? Uh, this just makes me think of St. Paul when he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. It just makes me think of this culture of, you know, people think that certain social media or sitting down and watching Netflix for six hours or, oh, it's not a sin, it's not a bad thing to do. But, well, yeah, it's not necessarily a sin, but... Is it the best thing you could do with your time? Should you really be putting your, your evenings, your leisure time to something like that that is kind of useless to find joy? Yeah. This is interesting because you sort of say, okay, I need this show or I need these knock-knock jokes or I need that meme generator or whatever, that funny guy on Twitter. I need these things because I have to 
I need some joy in my life, right? So I need a dark horse Pinot Noir that's exactly the right vintage or whatever it is, your needs, your external needs, right? And he's trying to get you to not do that, right? Don't place your happiness in the control of externals. So he says, the man who is goaded ahead by hope of anything, though it be within reach, though it be easy access, though it be uh, his ambitions, I'm just coming to the bottom of two and up to section three, is troubled and unsure of himself. Above all, ante omnia fac, this above all things do, is what the literal translation is there, right? Right, hook ante omnia fac, this above all things do. My dear Lucilius, make this your business. Learn how to feel joy. Disque gaudere. Learn how to feel joy. Take joy. And we have Gaudete Sunday coming up. What Seneca's pointing out is it's actually an act of the will to rejoice. Right? You have to focus your mind and then say, aha, I'm going to rejoice in this. As opposed to, I must find something to entertain me. I must find externals. Right? As opposed to, what is natural? What is my situation? What do I have to do today? What a joy that I have to give a webinar tonight at 7.30, right? What a joy, my wife might say, who's watching, I think, that uh, I'm nine months pregnant, but I have to cook a meal, right? Or, or drive a carpool because I'm doing God's will or because it's, uh, you know, a joy to do the good. That's a lesser than doing God's will, but that's the sort of thing Seneca's talking about here. Please, Paul. One quick note. That reminds me just in the, in the Mass, where the priest says, lift up your hearts, and we say we lift them up to the Lord, right? And I'm sure we've all said that plenty of times when, you know, coming in, we may not have been particularly cheery. You know, we had a hard day at work or something like that. But, yeah, the, the idea that you're, you're, you're training, that the joy is an act of the will, and that you're training your affections, right? And that at that moment, I, you, you, no, no, no matter what's happened to me today, I choose to rejoice at this moment. Right. And don't take joy in vanities. Right. Right. So he's saying you actually have control over what you rejoice in. It's up to you. In a certain sense, that's a whole education or a whole teaching right there with regard to fashioning your tastes. What do you rejoice in? So it's, you know, pretty fundamental stuff. Quickly moving, because we're going to run out of time. If you look down into section three on that same page, six of 10, he says in the middle, when I counsel the avoidance of hope, the sweetest thing that glads are helping me, are you asking me to crush my dreams is the counter question, right? Why can't I enjoy hope, hoping for things, right? The next job offer or, you know, uh, the fun birthday party or whatever. The, can I have hopes and dreams? Is this you, you soul-crushing wretch of a man? I mean, he sees this as quite the contrary. I do not wish you ever to be deprived of gladness. He's saying, I want you to be glad all the time, right? But if you constantly have a bunch of expectations that you are keeping up, right, rather than being glad in the day-to-day things that you have to do and not trying to push past the necessities of your work or whatever it is you have to do, your commute, but you just take joy in the necessity of things, right? Like, I have to do this. Well, now, in, in Catholic parlance, we'd say, I'm going to offer this up for God. I'm going to do this for his glory, and I'll offer this up for the salvation of souls. Or, you know, we have this whole ability to make it magnanimous, right, and do great good for the whole cosmos through these little things, which is awesome, right? But in a certain sense, Seneca is pointing out the naturalness of that supernatural activity, right? Not, I mean, he doesn't know that, but, but it's another indicator of that, that you should be thinking things through in that, in that way that I'm, I, I want to be glad in the things I need to do. I would have it born in your house and it is born there. If only it be inside of you, right? Like he, he sees it. If you can't do this, you're going to have a miserable home. <laughs> if you can't learn to rejoice, you will not be happy. And the people around you will not be happy. But it has to come from inside. It has to come from there. It's not going to come from the outside because externals will always betray. They will never fill up and they'll pass away. And you should be worried about that illusion. Now, this is some tough stuff, right? Even though it kind of comes at you, I think read it in a sort of pleasant way. 
and then uh, I think there's there's a real interesting correction of Seneca here in section four, where he says, "Real joy, believe me, is a stern matter." The Latin there is actually really interesting. Verum gaudium res severa est. It kind of has a ring to it. He says, "True joy, right? True gaudium is a severed thing, a severe thing, meaning something that's cut." Meaning, he's, he's referencing, I think, the separation of the body from the soul, meaning death. You have to actually be ready to give all. And that's the kind of levity, the lightness. You have to cut things off. And that removes your heaviness for lightness. But then he says something that's fascinating to me, especially as a big student of Thomas More. So forgive me an indulgence. Can one, do you think, despise death with a carefree countenance or with a blithe and gay expression? as our young dandies are accustomed to say. It's worth noting Thomas More was famous for scandalizing people by cracking jokes up on the scaffold. Like, oh, please, hangman, do not cut the, my beard, for it hath not offended the king, etc. Uh, oh, help me up, and I'll shift for myself on the way down. But all of these little these funny jokes, like people were like, that he's lost his mind. A serious moral man following Seneca would never crack jokes at his own death right? How could you look at your death with such carefree countenance? And in a certain sense, the grace of God gives him a kind of strength that it's not a severe thing. It's even lighter for us because for us, it's not the reward of virtue. It's, you know, perfect happiness, participation in the triune God. Don't get me wrong. I'm not Saint Seneca. No, I'm not canonizing this guy, but it's worth seeing the natural analogs but then grace can sort of do much more. But I would submit to you more used Seneca to prepare for death a ton. Like he used him constantly, uh, very much on the tip of his tongue. Right. So he has uh, the discussion of the gold mine. He says you got to go deeper, find deeper goods. Don't be so satisfied with superficial goods. Um, and then at six, he says, therefore I pray you, my dear Lucilius, do the one thing that can render you really happy. Right? So I always pay attention. I think it's always good. Seneca does this. He's sort of like, do this above all. Now, he'll say that about different things. <laughs> so you kind of, at a certain point, you've got to be patient and realize he's trying to catch your attention about one thing here and something else here. But he doesn't use it lightly. He says, cast aside and trample underfoot all things that glitter outwardly and are held out to you by another or as obtainable from another. Look toward the true good and rejoice only in that which comes from your own store. And what do I mean for, by from your own store? I mean from your very self, that which is the best part of you. Right? And then he talks about the frail body and you get this discussion of pleasure. And so what he's saying is like you need to prefer the higher goods of the soul over the bodily goods. Yes, Christina. I do think it's interesting, though, that he says that you shouldn't have hope even when it's within reach, right? So it's almost like he's saying that hope, you know, prevents necessity in the way that gives you that detachment, right? And so as Christians, we're called to have hope because they give us a context for that necessity, right? And help us to understand why it is that we're called to do these things. So how do you kind of square that tension? Yeah, I think at the end of the day, it goes too far is one sort of quick answer. He does go too far to say that you should try to have no hope. But on the flip side, you listen to the saints in their moral perfection. It's like, what would you do if it was the end of the world today? You'd be like, uh, nothing differently. Right? That's the same. Or was it John Bosco? Like, what would you do? I'd get a candy bar. Or I'd, you know, do X, Y, Z. Like, I'd just keep playing soccer with you kids, right? Like, I'm not doing anything different right now. Right? I think that's the kind of simulacrum that he, he sees as that's virtue. But the source of it, in a certain sense, when it really takes it on is that there's this supernatural hope that just makes all the other secondary hopes fade. And by the end of your life, you have that one hope. Right? That's your one hope. But there's tons of intermediary hopes, and nobody thinks you're going to do without them until you really are going to climb that last Calvary of your, Calvary of your life. 
that's the way I see, see it as, as it is true, but only in a certain sense. And so you have to always try to, with Seneca, he doesn't mind sounding like crazy to get your attention. But then if you read the next letter and you read the tapestry of his thought, he'll back away from that and it doesn't sound quite so severe. But at the end of the day, we do want to let go of those hopes. Like, I hope I get this next job and I, I really, that's what's going to fulfill me. Really? Is it? Really, the only thing that's going to fulfill you is achieving your final end. That's the one hope that actually makes sense. That's what he was saying in the previous letter. You must be constantly focused on the one thing. But we're all human, so we have a ton of little hopes. And I don't know if you've had this experience. I know I have. Or you feel like God's kind of like messing with you. He's like treating you like a little kid. Like, yes, I offered you the lollipop. But then I took it away later because I just needed you to do these three things first so you could be more of service to me. But I'm pulling the lollipop now, and you're never getting that thing that you hoped for for three years. It's not coming to be. You're like, oh, that's sad. I thought I was supposed to have it. He's like, yeah, but you got me. I'm like, okay, yes, good, got you. Like moving forward, like that sort of that pat that passage of detachment is important, but only in one sense. And this is what the resurrection does. And we're not even talking about that yet, because to your point, suddenly every little thing you do in this life that has interpersonal connections, all the people around you, the history of your drama, right? Even your very flesh, these things have new importance when you realize you're going to be resurrected in the body. But by the same token, this whole world's going to melt away like wax. Everything here, all of it, gone, fade to gray, then to black or red and fire, right? It's going to be gone. So, it's this double vision that Seneca is always encouraging, which I think is very much like our own, is that we're preparing for death. We're also preparing for a resurrection. And we're also looking at life. You, you have to constantly be flipping the two sides of the coin. Uh, and that nimble habit of thought is extremely Seneca. The only other thing I would just quickly point out a couple things before we close up. The real good may be coveted with safety. This is on page eight at the top of the page, just above seven. He says this very bony, the real good. You ask me what this real good is and whence it derives, I will tell you. It comes from a good conscience, ex bona conscientia. That's another whole thing we're not even talking about, but Seneca is the great propounder of the understanding of conscience. Cicero is, is another major player in developing the con concept of the conscience. But if you want to understand conscience, uh, those are two great thinkers to explore. And these epistles have much to say about conscience. From honorable purposes, right, which really is honestis conciliis, from noble or virtuous counsels, from right actions, rectis actionibus, and from contempt to the gifts of chance, from an even and calm way of living which treads but one path, right? So again, that's very Senecan. You have to have contempt for the riches and benefits and goods. You have to be detached, right? Or else these things will dominate and enslave you. And then he says, for men who leap from one purpose to another or do not even leap, but are carried over by a sort of hazard. By the way, at the end of this section, he's, or a previous section, he says, you have to hold on to one mode versus men leaping from mode to mode. If you study Seneca, you can actually figure out how to see what Machiavelli is doing wrong about prudence and leadership. One of the great fevers of our time is Machiavellian education of leaders, and Seneca is a great antidote to that. So let me just close with on page 10. Right? I shall enjoy life just because I am not over-anxious as to the future date of my departure. And then he says again on section 3, See to it that you never do anything unwillingly. Don't go with the flow. Mm. Do things in a reflective, cho chosen way. Vele, right? Choose the thing. Prefer the thing. Don't just go, oh, shucks, I gotta. This is my necessity, right? He's saying you should score necessity with the habit of taking joy in what you ought to do. Even if that what you ought to do is what you must do like brush your teeth, right? You should learn to take joy. He says, right at three, that which is bound to be necessity if you rebel is not a necessity if you desire it, right? So martyrdom, 
imprisonment, torture, loss of well-being, loss of your good name, all the sorts of bad things that can happen from fortune. We, because we can enjoy in the cross and unite ourselves with Christ, we can do this more easily in a certain sense, right? But this is very much the natural underpinnings of the grace life of someone who's suffering with Christ. And I submit to you that the more we get facility with these Senecan teachings of the interior life and the, the mode of wisdom, that we'll be able to be much better apostles to other people especially ad fidem to people outside the faith and in an age, right, that we're all entering into with many people without the faith at all, not even its vestiges. This is a great capillary. These texts are wonderful preparations of the good soil for the seed of faith. I think that's probably a good place to leave it for the Institute for Catholic Culture and Seneca. Thanks so much, Dr. Mia. I hope this has sort of whet the appetite for everyone in it. We're at a time where you can get things so easily, and that's a super dangerous place or, or, or way to live. But also, you can use it to your advantage in the sense that you can go get a copy of Seneca's Epistles and have it at your door in three days. Or <laughs> There's lots of Seneca to read. So I just encourage you, you know, whatever bookstore you go to, it's, it's not hard to get access to these texts. And, and hopefully... This class and, and last week's class has kind of opened our eyes to the fact that there's just a whole wealth of wisdom here, um, despite it not being mainstream. And uh, I kind of think back on uh, this one professor I had in undergrad who sort of lived by this maxim, and it could be misunderstood, but if you sort of take it and make it work, he said that, you know, you should live every day morally, like it was going to be your last day. But intellectually, you should sort of live as if you're going to live forever in the sense that you shouldn't shy away from doing sort of hard, long reading on, on text. Like don't try to take the easy way out and, you know, Seneca in 33 days boot camp or something like that, where you get a line a day on your phone or something like this is like, even though this may be a whole world that just has sort of opened up, don't shy away from that and sort of, you know, explore it, go out there and get these works and um, then get to work. I guess. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.